This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. Their most significant innovation in 30 years is the complete research system that gives you confidence you found the most relevant information, and it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com. In this economy, it seems that big legal issues don't necessarily need big law firms. Clients are increasingly turning to mid-sized law firms, some of which have had significant successes in the Great Recession. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal, and that's what we're discussing today. Joining me are Neil Goldberg of Buffalo's Goldberg Sagala, Mike Morgan, the managing partner of Tonkin Torp, a Portland, Oregon firm, law firm management consultant Ed Pohl, and Linda Templin, a partner of Milwaukee's White, Hirschbach, and Dudek. Linda, you're vice president of client services at your firm. Can you tell me a key action your firm does for client services that make you stand out among large law firms you're competing for business with? Uh, Yes, I'm happy to. Uh, We were recently recognized for uh, kind of a bold move among law firms. Uh, A year ago, we hired, as our chief executive, a non-lawyer to be our chief executive. Um, And our theory in doing that was in hiring a proven successful executive from the private side, we got a better sense of the kinds of issues and the kinds of service that are most important to our clients. Um, I'll admit that I think Paul has experienced a, a steep learning curve, maybe learning more about the personalities of lawyers and why it's like herding cats, Uh, But he does bring a perspective that has caused all of us, I think, to be more service-oriented and better in tune with what the client expects and how the client sees firms. I think many times, uh, whether it's uh, from a management side or a service side, we become focused on our internal processes and what we think the client wants or needs without really knowing uh, as well as we could uh, how the client feels about that. So I think it was a bold move. Um, there was a lot of buzz both in the, in the city, the state, and the greater region, um, but I think it was a very good move. Okay. Linda, can you give me a quick just specific example of perhaps what you've learned from this person that you brought in who's not an attorney that you, you guys didn't know before or surprised you? Uh, well, I think some things we knew, but we didn't internalize to the same extent. For instance, um, the, the one of the things that we've talked about is um, clients' awareness. Of, uh, we organize in practice areas. Clients don't tend to think about their legal needs in terms of practice areas. And so the, one of the key things is having the right spokespeople for the right matters to having a key liaison to a client so that we can quickly move it within our structure to the proper place. Um, Too often I think uh, the focus had been on billing attorney, relationship attorney, maintaining some kind of control, but not necessarily client knowledge control. So we've tried to staff the understanding of the client more deeply rather than issue um, identification, rather client identification, knowing the whole client um, and understanding where their needs might intersect and who our immediate go-to person is when the client uh, identifies a need, rather than funneling it through the availability of one person. Linda, this is Ed Pohl. I think your experience reflects 
what every study I've ever seen on the subject suggests or overtly states, and that is that lawyers really don't understand clients and their perspectives of what clients want, what clients value, is almost directly opposite of what the same focus groups with clients come up with. For example, most lawyers believe that fees may be the number one concern for clients. And in the client focus groups, that is not the number one concern. The number one concern for clients tends to be their perception of the value of the service rendered and how they understand that. Let me ask you this, Ed. Do you think with the success we're seeing with the mid-sized law firms now, do they have, do you think perhaps some of these successful mid-sized law firms, they have a good eye for what it is the clients want? Well, my own experience is that um, the mid-sized law firms don't have any better perspective of what clients want. They just have a closer relationship. I think the bigger law firms are getting away from that. Of course, having said that, you don't get big uh, by doing things wrong all the time. So obviously they're doing something right. But in my own experience, both in industry as well as in the legal community, the law firms get bigger not so much because they want to get bigger, but because they happen to tie their star to a very aggressive and growing client marketplace. In other words, if you start out with a company like, oh, let's say Standard Oil Company, and they're small, as in the early 1900s, and they grow significantly, then your law firm's going to grow, so long as you don't abuse that relationship. So the key here is always getting the right client, and always getting the client that's going to grow. This is Mike Morgan. The key is also to get and train the right lawyers. We've grown at a fairly measured pace, partly because the growth in Oregon and Washington has been measured. And we've grown because our junior people have grown up and acquired their own clients and taken over some of our clients, and they need servicing too. So to some degree, that client focus gets us to a natural, and in our case, fairly ordered growth that's reasonably easy to handle. Neil Goldberg, do you have something to add to that? Well, I agree with the notion that um, clients drive growth, but I think that law firms that develop strategic plans can develop a model that clients find particularly attractive so that the clients are glad to... um, assist in that growth model. And what what we've seen over and over and over is that um, the notion, as was mentioned earlier, that providing value is a key client um, requirement has been instrumental in allowing us to grow our constituency of clients and business across the footprint of our firm, which has grown from seven attorneys uh, in 2001 to 120 attorneys in 10 locations now in 2010. So we're not interested in growth for growth's sake. I think of growth as 
the natural outcome of a successful business model and trying to fulfill the needs of your client base. So we consider client retention uh, the number one priority, and we try not to spend as much time as many others may be on quote-unquote marketing activities and just cultivate the existing clients so that we can fulfill more of their needs in a broader spectrum of locations than others might be interested in doing. I see. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that's consistent with a lot of the studies that have shown that the number of um, types of services you provide to an existing client um, will be directly proportional to how long you retain that client. Um, so, for instance, if you service them in, in four different practice areas, the longevity of that client and the retention uh, statistics go up uh, monumentally. Um, conversely, if you provide one single service and don't cultivate the relationship, the longevity with that client will also go down. The other thing that happens is that the cost of doing business goes down if you're able to retain those clients because you don't have the marketing cost then. And Ed, I wanted to ask you, we're talking about the value for the client. I, I think we've all seen stories recently about large law firms laying off staff as part of a plan to whittle practices down to their key areas. What can lawyers learn from the successful mid-sized firms in terms of focusing your practice area in a way that's most profitable and doing it so that the service you're providing the client is extremely valuable to them and they want to keep you? Well, I think any lawyer can learn from any successful business. Um, and I think the kind of things we're talking about today here are, are key. Number one, make sure that you do provide the value. And it's not just that what you provide is valuable in your mind. That's clear because the lawyer who listens to the uh, prospective client during the intake session knows exactly what ne what's needed, and then he or she is off and running uh, to, to achieve that goal. Educate the client as to what value in that particular circumstance means uh, and understand from the client what it is that they're really looking for and then provide that. I mean, a, a, a clear example in a number of cases that I've seen over the years, both when I practiced law for 25 years and when I'm coaching and consulting for the last 20 years, is that a client will come in, lay a problem out on the table, and the, and the lawyer is off and running to the courthouse. But all the client really wants is sort of a delaying action to get his business affairs in order so he can more effectively compete in the marketplace. And unless the lawyer understands that, they're spending a lot of money that the client doesn't want to spend and, and doesn't need to spend. So whatever the circumstance may be, the lawyer has to understand what the client really wants and then have that conversation about the value to the client. And then once you go to that stage to work with the client to create the budget for the development of the, of the, of the legal services, and then long-term to retain that client, as Linda suggested. Linda, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I, I have um, heard clients say that uh, lawyers have a tendency to spend a great deal of time telling them why what they're going to do or about to do is very difficult and to talk about the options they weighed and why they discarded them or whatever. And clients have said, 
you know, I'm not interested in all the ruminations that went on in your brain um, to get there. What I'm interested in is exactly what you just said, and that is the result in the most painless way possible. We as lawyers tend to think it's terribly interesting to everyone to debate the finer points of the law or to brief it um, uh, to prove that we have exhausted all options. Some certainly need to be discussed with the client, but if they clearly don't work, they don't work. And unless the client was originally wedded to it, the client isn't terribly interested in paying for our time to tell them about it. Let's switch gears here. And I wanted to talk about a regional office presence versus a national presence. Now, Mike, your firm, Tonkin Torp, you have an office in Portland, Oregon, and an office in D.C. Can you tell me... Uh, when you're seeking business, how do you sell your office regionally? That seems to be a big piece of what the firm does. Well, you do it by expertise and having the good fortune to have clients that have work all over the world. That's one way to do it. In our case, we focus on some of the natural regional aspects, uh, natural resources law, environmental law, energy law. Uh, we're doing a lot of work in wind and solar, biomass. Um, those are consistent. We've built a presence in water law, which tends to span somewhat state to state, and out of that are able to work regionally. But we don't necessarily sell ourselves as regional. We just sell ourselves as capable of doing what it is we do and across the country in M&A, and then if need be, we hook up with uh, local firms in other jurisdictions. Out over the years, has your firm um, considered opening up an office outside of Oregon? I mean, besides Washington, D.C., I mean, have you thought about Seattle, or, excuse me, Washington or Idaho or California? Have you thought about that? We've thought about it in, at depth. At one point in time, uh, almost all of the major Seattle firms established a Portland presence, and a great many of them wanted to establish it by acquiring us. We decided long ago that we could keep our culture intact and the quality and flexibility intact if we stayed in one office and had trouble visualizing how adding other offices would add to the profitability of the people that were in the firm. Okay. Now, and Linda, your firm has two Wisconsin offices, right, in Milwaukee and Madison? Correct. Do you have anything to add about the regional aspect of the practice? Um, well, only that, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think we, we have a number of practice areas that would both um, credibly market and promote themselves as regional or even national, um, and we are able to service that. So it becomes a question of how do you do that uh, efficiently and what does the client think about the fact that these are two Wisconsin-based offices? Is there credibility or are there concerns about that? Um, you know, now that we're in a, you know, information and, and uh, technological age, no one really knows where anyone is at any given time. So it becomes uh, building a history of being able to produce the, the uh, necessary legal services quickly, efficiently, and um, then the, the location is less relevant. That being said, there are times where there's just no substitute for uh, feet on the ground. And at present, we have no plans to have offices in other states, although it is discussed on a fairly regular basis. I, I must admit more by perhaps 
um, the older generation of lawyers who truly believe there's no substitute for um, face-to-face meetings and um, being, you know, on site. But as, at present, we think the most efficient way, and we we feel that our lawyers, particularly in our um, IPIT, um, some of our specialized practice, our bond practice area, that we really don't need to have multiple offices in multiple states to provide service on a regional or even a national basis. And Neil, your office, you were telling us about your expansion over the years. Can you tell us how did your firm decide where you wanted to open offices at next as you as you went along? Well, we started in Buffalo, which is in the upper part of New York. And, you know, part of this is a function of what your practice is. So our firm is dominantly a litigation firm doing commercial and sophisticated products liability and personal injury litigation. So we have a significant number of national clients, but when you're doing litigation in the same state, many clients will oftentimes, if they're satisfied with your services, ask if you can handle a matter somewhere else in the state for them. We wanted to be able to answer that question yes and be able to say that we could provide a uniform, high-level legal services at a very competitive rate and as a mid-sized firm be able to substantially compete with the larger national firms, uh, cost-wise, competence-wise, efficiency-wise, etc., and offer clients a viable alternative. And for us, it's proven to be a very successful model because time and again, a company that started as a client in one of our locations has given us work in the nine other locations. So we have a significant multiplier effect that we, doing our kind of work, as distinguished from bond work, um, need to be on the ground at. Somebody has to go into court. Mm-hmm. And, you know, clients don't want to pay for you to be traveling here and there, except in the worst of the cases. So for us... This is uh, the best model, and at the same time, we are very virtual, and I think it's true. People don't know where you are at any point in time, but we don't have a um, regular computer in the whole firm. Every attorney has a laptop. We expect our attorneys to be on the move. Everybody has a cell phone. Every Most people have iPads or something that's an equivalent. So people are on the move, and they're self-contained units, no matter where they are. Uh, But again, as litigators, somebody's got to walk into that courtroom, so we have to be on the ground. Let's go back to the topic of value that we were talking about earlier. It seems to me that a big part of many mid-sized law firms' successes is offering the good value to clients. And at the same time, they're able to manage their internal finances in a way that cuts costs and maximizes profits, which keeps the partners happy and they don't leave. I'd like to get your best brief piece of advice about those two things from everyone. And let's start with Mike. Well, my best piece of advice, uh, at least what works for us, and I think Neil is correct 
it depends on your practice. Ours is uh, largely business and then litigation that arises out of that. We've worked with a model that believes heavy on experienced attorneys versus junior attorneys works well, and having flexible attorneys that have done a variety of things works well, so that when the business shifts or new pro- new practice areas come in, you're capable of filling those needs. Recently, for instance, we handled the biggest bankruptcy in Oregon that ultimately took 51 of our 90-some billers. Who was your client in that? Our client was uh, the restructuring officer of SunWest Management. They had several hundred assisted living facilities, and uh, it needed a reorganization over a year and a half. And we were able to use our corporate lawyers, our tax lawyers, our real estate lawyers, all led by our bankruptcy lawyers. Part of the reason we could do that is that a number of us have just had good general business practices over the years, and it's fairly easy to shift. So you don't need to build up a giant force of people that you might ultimately have to let go in order to handle it. And then we insist that our younger people get into court or get with clients and get and train them to, frankly, get flexible and client-focused at a very early age. So that's probably our number one method of controlling costs and providing value at the same time. Okay. And, Neil, what's your advice? Well, you know, I I agree with everything that's been said in that regard. I mean, there's there's two components to how we conduct our business, particularly in treacherous economic environment that we have today. And in our firm, as I think is the uniform sentiment from the people I've heard on the call so far, we don't treat our attorneys as if they're fungible. So peaks and valleys in terms of work or large projects, is a major challenge. So our answer to that, to modestly overstaff so that we have that excess capacity to handle major um, challenges for our clients when they occur. So we did the lead recall, the regulatory work for Mattel when they had their lead recall, and that took a considerable amount of of manpower. We had the manpower, so we didn't have to go out of house to do it, but when that matter was over, that uh, manpower was easily absorbed into other areas of our litigation and commercial practice. And Linda, what's your advice? Well, it's actually uh, advice that's fairly recent with um, uh, our new chief executive, and that is that we... um, bit hard and uh, started a an intensive profitability analysis with respect to all matters and clients. Um, you know, lawyers tend to um, perhaps at times not be the best business people and sometimes um, have not really ground down into the numbers to conclude whether the staffing was right or the fee and the fee structure was right. Uh, that led to the result because we all do have a lot of motives that caused us to be lawyers and hopefully many of those were highly principled, but among them was certainly um, the desire for the firm to be profitable. And so um, there's a a lot of times high volume work that generates big numbers, but when you grind down into who's doing the work, that may not be the best, uh, the most profitable. It may not be profitable at all. 
there's been kind of a culture change as you scrutinize those um, and figure out what makes sense from a staffing standpoint. Um, at some point, the most senior lawyer on fairly routine routine work can't be servicing that work. And so my advice would be as hard as it is sometimes to take a look at those numbers and have worked very, very hard uh, only to be told that that wasn't profitable, um, at the end of the day is very informative and we found that it's been an eye-opener for some practices and has informed also uh, not only staffing but hiring decisions. Linda, can you tell me, how does your firm tend to staff matters? I mean, generally speaking, for instance, how many associates, paralegals, and secretaries usually work with partners? Well, it depends on, it depends on the matter. Um, you know, in litigation, for instance, it's, there are, uh, per attorney, more paralegals than there are on the transactional side. I'm a transactional lawyer, and so I actually think that that's, that transactional lawyers have been a little bit behind the curve in learning the value added that you can bring and the cost efficiency by having really good paralegal staffing. Um, on the other hand, my practice is a bond practice and I don't have a lot of, of associate staffing. So that brings its own issues. So it really is dependent on the practice area. We're aware in every practice area of the need to have both uh, multiple levels of uh, fee structure, but also the succession planning and the firm building that arises from associates. We're not a real large firm, but our average hiring is to add at least um, four to five new associates each year. Um, and the, those associates almost inevitably will go maybe three to litigation and two to the transactional side. Okay. And Mike, how does your firm staff up matters? Uh, similar, you have to do it on an engagement by engagement, client by client basis, obviously, but typically in litigation, we start out with the experienced lawyer that brought the business in, perhaps, maybe a junior partner if it's a major deal, uh, an associate and a, a paralegal would be very typical. Typical on the business side, too, we would start a transaction with an experienced lawyer, maybe a senior associate, and then if you ended up getting into documents, due diligence, and some of the least inspiring parts of those deals, <laughs> get some more junior people and paralegals to help you out. So you start uh, fairly lean and fairly focused and fairly experienced, and then if we need to add to it, then we go ahead and add to it. Okay. And Neil, what, how does your firm staff up matters? Well, I do it up front with the client. So uh, we're doing a national product liability litigation for um, a large uh, case or a series of cases that have been MDL'd in Florida for a client. And I gave them, and I suggested, a comprehensive budget, and I told them how many partners we planned on using, how many associates and how many paralegals and with the understanding that this is a work in progress and if there are other needs that arise then we add an individual on for a specialized purpose within that group so they've had some specialized research requests they've given us some additional projects to do in connection with the litigation so I will say well everybody else in the team and it's a six attorney team 
and uh, three paralegals is, you know, largely already busy, and they'll authorize that. But unless they, unless I have that understanding with them, I don't think clients like surprises, and I don't like to guess about what their expectations are in terms of fees, etc. So I try not to surprise anybody. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is everything we have for today. I want to thank you all so much for your time. We really appreciate it. This ABA Journal podcast was brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. The most significant innovation in 30 years, it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you found the most relevant information, and it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com.